I can't hear you. If you're laughing or responding, my head is all blocked up, so I have no idea. Just kind of do one of these. I don't know you're following along. Thank you so much, Danny, for leading us in communion, and uh, just always enjoy listening to Danny's take on things and his passion, and and uh, and uh, just appreciate that challenge to be in awe before the Lord for all that he's done, and I just know that Danny and his wife, Marianne, have seen things that the Lord has done that has caused their jaws to drop, and so the the little bit that he shares with us is is a fraction of, of all that the Lord's led them through and shown them and stuff, and and so between you and, and Russ, though, I've, I'm in awe of great beards. My goodness. We got to stop doing this. We got to stop sharing the poll with these guys that have these awesome beards because I've got something I'm trying here, but it just it never really works. Again, I had nine children because I can't grow a beard. That's just, you know, we're motivated for different reasons. We'll get to that in a moment. Jen, thank you so much for putting that video together, too. It really makes you feel like you miss out on something. I wish. No, I, I won't finish that statement. But it's just, no, it's really, I'm not trying to be here comedy hour here this morning, but that's the medicine. It's just doing something to me. But Jen, really, what a profound and, and moving uh, depiction of uh, what I've heard so many ladies say they enjoyed and experienced from that time at the women's retreat. And just the Lord is doing something really Incredible in the lives of our ladies and and leading them in uh, passion and wisdom and uh, availability and vulnerability and all the things that the Lord would have for a a woman's spirit are being developed here at faith. So I just can't be prouder and I really appreciate the way that you all work together as a team and represent our church so well. Uh, This morning, as we get into our uh, text here is we were talking in this part of Ephesians chapter five. If you're new to faith, we go through a book of the Bible from cover to cover. The Bible is made up of 66 individual books. And so we pick one book at a time and, and cover the whole swath of it and try to gain the Lord's instruction for us out of the context of uh, what the writer was was um, was communicating to the listeners of the time. And then we always believe and trust that God's word is relevant for our lives today. And so we strive to be faithful to that. And we think that sticking with the book from beginning to end is is the best way for us to stay on track and do that. And so we found ourselves now towards the end of the letter of Ephesians in the New Testament. And uh, we've been uh, looking at this from the standpoint of, of how the Lord can prepare and change and transform a family. And I, I threw out the lofty goal that you can have a new family by Christmas. And if you're looking at the clock and you're going, Hey, it's getting a little close. You promised me a new family. I know I'm still trying to deliver. But the reality is this, is it takes a momentary decision, a change in perspective. What we'll get to is a change in your motivation to to completely transform or revolutionize your family. A little girl was asking her mom when they were getting the Christmas meal all together and the mom was cutting off the ends of the roast and she was slicing off the sides and the little girl says, mom, why do you cut off the ends of the meat before you put it in the oven? And she says, well, I don't really know exactly why. She says, I, I gather it's probably to make sure that the seasoning and everything gets kind of more inside the, the meat and everything. But you, why don't you ask your grandmother? I learned it from her. She probably knows really the reason why. So the little girl goes and finds the grandmother and says, 
You know, grandma, why do you cut the ends off the meat and everything? She goes, well, I think it's to probably get the juices to kind of flow in there and everything. She says, but you can ask your great grandma because we all learned it from her. And so she would have the explanation as to why we do this. And so the little girl went and finds finds uh, her great grandmother and says, why? And she says, I don't know why the women do that. I just my pants were too small for the meat. <laughs> they've just copied ever since. This is a this is a season of tradition. We hold on to our traditions. We copy a lot of things that were handed down to us. When we exercise those tra- uh, traditions, we feel a connection to things of our past. And sometimes we have no idea why we're doing them. The reason why this is relevant for our discussion about how God makes families is because our society is holding out the tradition of family as something optional without really understanding where it came from, what its purpose is. And so we can pick and choose these traditions and say which ones we want to apply and which ones we don't. If you happen to be old school and want to do it this way, then fine. If you see a new and more modern way, then you you do that. And then the, someone's asking the question, why do we do this? And most people are like, I don't know. It's just the way it was. The data through all the studies that are being honest will support the truth that marriages and families done God's way impact society and culture in very positive and healthy ways. That this idea of picking and choosing the pieces that we want to do or not want to do or everything is a recipe for disaster. And so health has been uh, gained from a society that has honored God's picture for the family. And I, I think, and you probably are seeing it too, that the world around us is searching for things that last. I have a theory that I've been touting now for the last decade and a half or so, ever since all of these renovation shows have been coming out. And everything was a, a rush to the more modern look was the thing that looked old. Now, I overthink everything. And so rather than just being entertained by it, I'm asking, why do people do this? I like the look of it and all the traditional stuff and everything. But I'm sitting there thinking about it going in America. We don't have as many vestiges to things that are centuries and centuries old. And, and a lot of our, our, our gadgets and all the other things that we live by are made to be temporary, that they break soon, that our, our shows end quicker and all of these things. And life is just passing us by and that people are aching for some element of tradition or some kind of anchor to heritage, something they can point to and say, that's why this thing looks as old as it is. That's why it has meaning to us because it's a, an antique or because it seems to have stood the test of time. That I think without realizing it, people are drawn to this thing that looks traditional or of a heritage because we don't get much of it in our lives. Most things seem to be built to break or to be replaced, to be traded in. I'm also amazed too that you can see a teenage girl break down in tears when she watches a a sappy, sentimental movie about two old people dying side by side together. These girls have their whole lives ahead of them. They think that the, you know, the quarterback of the football team is going to be their dream guy forever. And there's all this thing. And yet there's still something that's drawn in their hearts about wouldn't it be nice to have the security that that's my future. That I will die side by side. That I will die along with one who has stuck with me and has been faithful through it all. And yet our young girls are missing this. As they see their moms and dads not stick it out or 
uh, or survive the test of time. And they're wondering if that's, there's any hope for them in this. The married believer in Jesus Christ is perfectly poised to demonstrate to this world around us what they no longer believe is available. Maybe they would say, hey, luck of the draw, you find the right person and your childhood sweethearts and you make it the whole distance. But for the most part, there's a, a failing sense of, 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 of confidence that what we started out with, we will end up with when it's all over as well. Biblical marriage has been given to us as one of the most important demonstrations of a loving, charitable, and faithful God. And that's what I believe that Paul wants us to see as we get into this text in Ephesians 5, that he's not just giving you and me healthy and happy tips to have a better marriage. That's not the way we should be treating this text. Paul is saying, this really isn't about you, and it really isn't about me. That as we engage in our families and we live to, to uh, find out what God has for us in them, that they are more about him and the message he wants to communicate to the world around us. That there is a heritage, that there is an anchor, that there is a trustworthy and reliable source, that there is sacrificial love that we can draw on. Now, last week we... Brought the husbands into focus after uh, uh, emphasizing the role of wives uh, two weeks prior. And I believe that as we come to husbands, for the most part, if I were to say to them, hey, you guys have the ability to put Jesus on display to your community better than most people ever could. I think I would get some varied responses, but all coming from the same place. Most guys would approach that with some element of humility and just be like, "Ah, I think you got the wrong guy. I'm not really the greatest poster child for all things God and glorious and gracious and all those kinds of things. So I appreciate the sentiment, but I think you've got the wrong guy or other guys would would actually operate from a sense of insecurity, which might say, no, I know what you're asking me to be. And I've heard the scriptures before and I've heard every pastor's message and I just don't feel like I can put it together. I don't know how to be that guy. And unfortunately, all too often, we find a lot of apathy, which is just, hey, don't bother me with that. I've got enough fish to fry on my own. I've got my own things going on. I don't have time to save the world with all of your. This is how men approach these quite often. Very few guys would say to me, hey, I'm glad you're pointing this out because this is exactly the way I've set the mission of my life. I, I see that, too, that that I'm supposed to give all I am to those who whom God has tr- entrusted to me. Very few men would see that as their calling, would see themselves as being resourced or equipped to be faithful to that. And that is a problem because the church is called, the church is equipped, and so are our husbands. As we said last week, there's a great myth out there that men just really aren't good at this relationship thing. We're not really built for it. Women seem to be better, generally speaking, at relationships. And men are just trying to catch up. They're just trying to figure it out. So whatever the wife spells out to him is what he should be knowing and doing. But I believe that to be a great myth. If you've looked around and seen guys relate to one another in sports teams, in the bars, going to war. Work projects, men know how to relate to other human beings, believe it or not. I, f- I looked up the data. It's possible. Men do know how to say hello, good morning, goodbye, all those kinds of things. That we do engage in relationship 
But the truth is, is that our motivations for engaging in relationships and our approaches to those relationships are often what need to be rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. As men, we often give ourselves to all kinds of things. We, we provide for others. We raise children. We take a wife. We do all those kinds of things, but we don't often examine the reasons why we do those things. Is it a sense of responsibility? Well, it's a tradition that's been handed down to me. It's what's expected of me. Is it ego based? Well, I want to, you know, have nine children so I can prove I can handle it all. Is it, is it guilt? I, I, I feel bad. I let somebody down and so I want to make it, make it up to them. What are the motivations and the reasons why men would give their lives to a thing? And until a husband under God's care has his core affections changed from, Hey, what do I get out of this arrangement to what do I get to give to the Lord in this? His relational priorities will continue to suffer and it will become evident in his life. Here's the hope in this, though, that the Lord has given us the opportunity to do what we already do, though we could do it better for a higher mission than ourselves. And because I believe that Paul is going to call us to represent a picture to those around us and not just make something happier or healthier for ourselves, I believe it's important for us to remember that this decision will impact the gospel in your surroundings more than anything else you could do. So to the man who's sitting here this morning thinking, what impact could I really make for the kingdom of God? In the proximity and the priority of your marriage, you can make all the difference in the world. Towards the end of our passage last week, we saw in Ephesians 5 and verses 31 and 32 that Paul gave us in quoting Genesis, he gave us the purpose of marriage or the conduct of it. He said in verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church already right out of the gate. Paul is saying this arrangement is not one out of convenience. It's not one out of personal pleasure. It is for a higher purpose, though it may afford us those other things. So let me very quickly do a little bit of review from last week, because we called this a part A and part B kind of scenario. You might recall that as I was talking to a husband who might be here and saying, okay, I understand that my marriage isn't for me alone. I understand that that is my focus and the filter of which I should see all of my life. How am I supposed to go about making sure that I'm doing this the right way? Where do I go next? And again, because of Paul's words being in these last three chapters of Ephesians being intensely practical, we will also do the same. I encouraged you to focus on the responsibility of your role rather than uh, thinking about being dis uh, uh, distracted by the desired perks of your role. Remember, we had said that unequivocally God has given you the position of being head of the house. I, I sometimes feel like it's unsafe to say that in an evangelical church. And I share the example of my mentor who would say that on to college kids, you know, who had no sense of uh, the, uh, the structure of biblical framework or anything like that. And I'm like, boy, it's dangerous. 
But the scripture says clearly the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And we cautioned you, though, to understand that that doesn't mean the head the way that we always think it does. Jesus had had demonstrated that headship was equal to what? Responsibility. Not authority, not just calling the shots, not being the big boss man, but instead taking on the weight of responsibility of how do we get the job done? What is the accomplishment that needs to be made? And if I am at the top of that as under the Lord, then if the job's going to succeed, it's got to be on my shoulders. Of course, we face our critique out in the culture about, well, really, no one is supposed to be the head. We're supposed to show mutual respect for one another and just go along to get along and it'll all work out. And, and for the most part, that's functionally how it should work. Most of the relationships that I've seen that seem to function very well with a, a, a biblical sacrificial head of the house being the husband and the submissive wife is one that really looks like agreement, one that really looks like kind of working together. And there's times where it seems like she's taking the lead on a certain thing and he's taking the lead on other things. It's hard for people to pinpoint where all of this kind of like headship decisions are made because it's a little gray when it starts to work side by side. But ultimately, responsibility says, but the buck stops with me. The weight of making the right call or bearing the brunt of making the wrong call falls on me. When I explain it to others in those terms, a lot of people say, well, I guess I get where you're going with that. You see, most of the objection that we see in our culture is on what people think the Bible is saying, not in what it's actually saying. This is why you and I lose the battle when we just try to explain. We just try to, with our keyboards, try to lob bombs at one another. Well, this, and then this verse says this, and you're all going to get this and all this kind of stuff. We have to take the time and the patience of demonstrating what Jesus really meant. And that's where marriage becomes a great vehicle for that. So focusing on the responsibility of our role and not the perks or the desired perks that we might get out of it, we saw in the example of Jesus, that that looked like willful sacrifice. Back to Philippians 2, we'll narrow our focus just a little bit. But in verse 5, Paul said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This isn't one that we've got to go find somewhere. It's once you are you are bought and owned by the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ, he has given us this mind of Christ. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Doesn't mean he, he didn't understand it or anything. It just meant I am God. I am in the form of God, but that's not what I'm holding on to in this moment for this reason, for this task. Verse 7, what did he do? But he emptied himself. He constrained aspects of his godness by taking the form of a servant being born as a little baby. Remember the metaphor that we said is if a ship needs to get from one place to another back in the day in which Paul was writing it, it got there based on it got there powered by slaves. And so Jesus in this image is the rightful captain of the ship. Every right to be staying up at the helm and just taking in the sun and just watching and saying we're going that way and the ship's going to get there based on that power. But because he limited himself, because he became in the form of a servant, he went below deck. 
And he took the shackles off the slaves and placed them on his ankles and his wrists and grabbed the oar. And he said, hey, guys, I got this. You go to the top deck. Enjoy the sun. Enjoy some of the perks of this ride. I've got this. This now becomes the model for every husband in marriage. God has got a direction in which the marriage is supposed to go in his will. And how often you and I are willing to go below deck to link our ankles and our wrists and start rowing is what actually gets it there. You know, men historically have had a little bit of a challenge when it comes to being a little obsessive about a title or maybe a particular social status or an income level or things. Those are the things that that matter to us and we want to wear those things on our sleeves and we want to tout them as an arrival of some sort. But an obsession with those things rather than our responsibility to whatever title or status or anything we've received is going to sink our lives or our mission before the Lord every single time. This is not what we saw in Jesus. So moving forward, let's go to our second point here. If you're not following along in your notes, I just want to mention to you that on your way in, you got the announcements on the backside of those announcements are sermon notes and try to give a little bit of a skeletal framework for you to follow along, pen things down if you need to. Um, and then also at the end of those notes are some to do's. And so what can we do next with this message? So if you're not in the habit of checking those out each week, as you come in, I would encourage you to do that. But our second point here, as we focus on the responsibility of our role, not our desired perks is to focus our energy on our wives provision, not our desired peace. I use peace here a little bit Well, I needed a P word. Uh, solitude is the word I really wanted. Peace sounds like I'm saying there isn't a, a such thing as peace to be attained, but there is. Uh, we guys, we love our solitude. We love to be able to be left alone from time to time. We go and we work hard or whatever, and then we come home and then we just don't want to deal with another issue. And so we're, I just want to be alone. I want my place to retreat. We started inventing these things called man caves, which I still have yet to attain in my life. We're kind of building one now and she's already got plans for it. So, (laughs) But we guys, we desire solitude. And this is why we see so many leaders of great organizations or great companies go home to these failing and swirling down the drain kind of families because they're big. They're good at making big decisions all day long. And when they come home to the place that it all really counts, they say, please don't bother me with this. I've been doing these things all day. And historically, we've seen this as as men rise a a corporate ladder or gain other uh, titles or accolades out in society. They have a tendency to shirk those responsibilities at home where it matters most. But peace, not just solitude, but peace, an inner calm, a joy of knowing that your life is going in the direction that it should. That comes when godly priorities are in order and purpose is being fulfilled. And I'm here to warn you guys, especially I, I know, I know, I know what year I live in. And I know I'm talking to a lot of ladies at work too. Please don't take this as a chauvinist kind of message here this morning. But there is something about the ego and the value that men place on their work that if you take them from that, they don't know who they are. 
I haven't found that to be the, the problem in general for, for women. Peace comes from doing the thing that you know counts. And the job itself is a means to an end. The job itself, even my job, you say, well, you work for the Lord. Well, a lot of times it does a function and operate like, like punching the clock and doing a job. It's not like I walk around feeling holy all the time. There isn't a, a smell of incense wherever I go. I don't know. I try to think of a holy thing. There, that isn't, there's a lot that in my work and the other pastors here and stuff that feels a lot like a grind. And if we're not careful, we don't count every day in our, in our practices though. This one really counted for the Lord today. Our purpose has to come more from, uh, more from than just those kinds of things and find out where the Lord would have us be centered. So Paul is saying to us husbands back in our text where that comes from. He's talking about Jesus and what he's done in marriage and given us this picture. And in verse 26, we pick up that says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way. husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Paul is saying that Jesus gave to his bride, that is all of us who are in Christ, and it's a weird metaphor a little bit for us, but that is what's going on, that he, we are his bride, that he cleansed us and he sanctified us. That means he, he made us purposed and set us apart, made us holy consecrated by bringing us to himself. And Paul is saying, husbands, he has done that with your wives. That's what Jesus has done for your wives. Now, remember, we got to take ourselves back to the historical dynamic here. Paul is elevating the, the, the listening ear of women as they are reading this letter aloud in Ephesus. And they're kind of going, you see, guys, told you we counted. Paul is saying to the husbands, she is a fellow heir of life. She is a recipient of God's grace, just like you are. And he has cleansed her. He has purified her and he has done the work. When Jesus redeems us, that means he owns us. That starts to put things in perspective for a godly man, because we're, we're no longer thinking that they're there for our service but that they are for the Lord's service. I also think that this is a little bit interesting when we think about the gospel. Because this is what Jesus does for us, he he cleanses us from our sin. He provides the only cleaning solution that any of us could ever use or want because we can't do it ourselves. We've tried. We're, we're like the women of society in the first century trying to maybe find a voice for ourselves or having a longing or an aching in our heart saying, I wish we counted. I wish we were educated like them. I wish we were in the fold and society was saying, no, you can't be. It's the same way that our sin has separated us and made us outside of the society of God's love and grace until he reaches in and cleanses us and draws us in and says, you belong to me now. All of this is wrapped up in this picture of marriage. You see, this is so much more than just take your wife out on a date. 
Make sure you don't forget the chocolates and flowers or say the I love you's in the morning. All those things are great. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying that they're count, that they're pointless. There's so many of those things that I need to brush up on and every man in this room needs a reminder of. But those things are less problematic and they don't require as much when we are motivated by doing this as the Lord has done it for us. Paul says that we are to provide caring provision. He says to love them as we love our own bodies. When's the last time, guys, you skipped a meal? (laughs) I don't really know. It might have been in 1996 for me. I, if I hear gurgle, 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 I'm thinking Brent needs to eat something. Brent's going to go find something to eat. Brent's going to keep talking to himself in the third person. <laughs> I don't typically deprive myself of the things that I want or need by, as a matter of habit or course. Paul is banking on this. He's saying, especially to a culture of men who are able to indulge in all kinds of things. He says, trust me, you're already taking care of yourself way more than you think you are. It's time for you to honor her, to nourish her, to cherish her the same way that you've been taking care of yourself. As you as a man have been looking out for all of your interests, your needs, your extras, all that kind of stuff. It's time to start putting that kind of priority and availability towards her. Again, this is like a lot of time that Paul is spending on dealing with these husbands, getting us to see things differently, how radically different this would have been to the, to the ear of that day. So for us men today, how well do you know what your wife needs? It's uncomfortable for many of us to ask those questions. It's, it's uncomfortable for us to admit that we've let something go on so far that we, we have to just kind of go, Hey, I don't really know what it is you're looking for from me. Well, after 20 something years, you should know, like we're expecting all of that response. And so we just kind of cower. We don't investigate. We don't invest. It's difficult to do that when you've let it go so long. Now, please understand, it's not just you giving her what she wants, although in a lot of ways, that's an okay place to start. But loving someone is doing the best for the one that you love, not doing what they demand. But by and large, your wife, especially if she's humble before the Lord and following the Lord, her wants are kind of equal to what the Lord would have for her anyway. And it's not a bad place to begin with. But there's hope for us, gentlemen, in this is that we don't have to necessarily just every time she says, but I want this now and I want this now and I want this now. This is what has created a bunch of leaderless men and husbands in marriages. The pastor said I was supposed to just give in, pay more attention, give her everything she's asking for. That's not what the pastor said this morning. Love is doing the best for the one you love. We have several different heating systems in this church building, you know, as most main buildings, big buildings in the Northeast have a lot of different sources of heat and different ways in which the heat comes into the room. In this room in particular, we get air that drops down through the ceiling. If you said, hey, it's cold in here, I'd like it to be a couple degrees warmer. I can go over and hit a couple of buttons real quick. And within maybe five, 10 minutes, we would notice a really big difference. I'm going to hang that scenario out there as the typical way that most people solve the uh, the problems in their family. 
I want it to be a hot air system. I want to hit a button and I want it to change. Now, on the other end of our building in our office wing, we have the radiant floor heat. You know, those tubes of water that go through the floor and you say, okay, I want it to be a couple degrees warmer. If any of you have radiant floor heat, especially in concrete floors and things, you'll know that it'd probably be about an hour or two before you really start to notice a major change in the heat of the room. And then if you say, oh, I changed my mind, it's too hot. Good luck trying to get it to go away. You're kicking it down and it's like, oh no, we're running through this cycle for a while. We're going to still roast you out. You're opening windows for a little bit. I made a mistake. I made a mistake. This is the way that the Lord has designed a husband's leadership role in a marriage. There's a difference between being a thermostat and a thermometer. A thermostat, I mean, a thermometer will just tell you how warm or cold it is in a room. And a lot of guys have taken it on themselves to be the thermometer. And that's where we get a lot of our wisecracks and our jokes and all those kinds of things about, well, you know, the wife's not going to like this one very much. Or, yeah, I heard an earful from her last night about this and everything. They're being good little thermometers. They're walking in and going, it's cold in this house. I'm leaving. Or, it's too hot. Turn that heat down. And we go and embark orders or something. We either get very passive or we get very aggressive because we're going in there as as thermometers. But God has called us as leaders and responsible and caring leaders in our homes to be like a thermostat that says, I need to change the temperature, but I'm not dealing with an air system that's going to happen right away. That I'm going to go into a place and say, Lord, what is the temperature that you've gauged for this family? I don't know all of your ways. I don't know what's all required of me. I'm trying to do this one humble step at a time. So I think you're leading me and you're calling me as I pray about it and study God's word to go and hit the button. But I don't need to, I don't need you to jump at my requests or my demands. If it takes a few hours, few days, few months, few years to change the temperature in this family, just help me to be faithful to push the right buttons. Help me not to to hit them out of my own sense of urgency and demand and be upset with you or her or them when they don't give me what I wanted out of the scenario. That's what it means to be a caring provider. One who shows gentle appreciation. Let me skip down. Uh, I'm going to actually ask for our next passage of scripture. We're going to go down to verse 7 and just deal with the last verse here. In 1 Peter 3, we taught through this a couple of years ago when we were in this letter. I think this will help us kind of wrap up our time here. 1 Peter 3, verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands. Now, this is after he's already told the wives that you have to call your husband Lord. That's the tagline of the whole thing. So go back and study it. This week could be a lot of fun. It's really great. Husbands are going to be like, I know what I'm doing for devotions with my wife this week. No, in verse 7, Paul says, Likewise, after I've just got done talking to the husbands about how to show respect and patience, especially with a husband who is disobedient to God's word and needs a crack over the head from the Lord. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. That's the part we were talking about. That they are fellow heirs and recipients of God's salvation. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Paul, uh, Peter is saying to husbands. In, in echoing Paul's words to Ephesus even. That we are to dwell with our wives in proximity and time and priority. To live with them in an understanding way. He didn't just say provide for them. And then go and do whatever you want to do. He said live with, dwell with them 
in an understanding or considerate way. Considerate is a great word. We know what that means. We can picture considerate means, you know where I'm going with this, right? Opening a door. Guilty, guilty. Opening a door and, and being a gentleman and all those kinds of things. But also considerate means pondering, studying, trying to figure this thing out. Culture has told you, mostly in a joking fashion, there's no way you can figure out the mind of a woman. But here Peter is saying, yes, you can. She has a manual. God has given you the instruction manual. And he said, you just got to become a student of what she needs. Her wants may change and her target may move all that. But if you're going to be faithful to the Lord's calling, you'll determine what she needs and you'll seek to provide it. He says, as you do that, you'll be showing her honor. You'll be, you'll be putting a spotlight on her. You'll be treating her like the weaker vessel. It'd be like that, that priceless vase you would have in your house. And instead of leaving it on the edge of the wobbly coffee table as the toddlers are running all through, you say, no, this is going in a special room under special lighting in a secure glass case thing. I want everyone to see the beauty and the brilliance of what I have that I do not deserve. And I can't put a price on. Peter is saying that that's how we have to see her. That she's fragile in so many ways. And the more careless we are with her, the more we lead her into places that cause her to be bruised and broken and chipped away. We're not treating her as a fellow daughter of the Lord. I've been very blessed to have a couple of children-in-laws. I have two sons-in-law and a daughter-in-law and we can't be prouder of them and so thankful for them. And I've just been so thankful to the Lord that I haven't had to go in the direction that I'm about to illustrate here for you, but I want them to hear it nonetheless. <laughs> Peter says that if you don't treat your wife carefully, showing her honor as a weaker vessel, your prayers will be hindered. Imagine if I were to take one of my fictitious, not my real sons-in-law, out fishing. And we're out in the middle of a pretty big lake. And I say to him, hey, bud, how's it been going with my daughter? You know, I told you a little bit about what to expect and everything. How's it been going? And he says to me, he goes, oh, it's been going really good. It finally clued into me when she was starting to say all the things I didn't want to hear anymore. And she was doing it in that naggy, annoying way and everything. I just popped her a good one, put her in her place. Now everything's fixed. What's the chances do you think that there'll be two men coming back to shore from that fishing trip? Right? I mean, what dad with any sense would just be like, sounds like a good solution. He would murder the man. This is how God sees every son of his coming and acting pious before the Lord and waxing eloquent about all the glories of God and all the importance that he has and he's mistreating God's daughter. That he's saying to him, I want you to bless me. I want you to hear my prayer request. Would you shut up already? I, I, Lord, I love you so much. Get, get off my back. That, that somehow we wouldn't expect God to be completely offended by that, by treating his daughter in that fashion, in that manner. Peter is warning saying, if you're going to, to, to have your prayer life and your blessings before the Lord in place, you better be taking care of his cherished possession, his fellow heir of the grace of life. Verse 33 of back to Ephesians five. He says, however, this is now to all of us as we wrap this up. 
Husbands, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. And godly marriages bring glory to God by showing appreciation for the spouse they have rather than dwelling on the one they don't. Focusing on all the things that need to change. By not elevating the blessings that have been given in their life because the Lord has led them together despite all the difficulties and the strangeness and the hurt and the pain, but we're you're here now. And just as a side note, we get so wrapped around the axle about how to raise our kids right, make sure they're in good programs, make sure they're getting educated well and all those kinds of things. There is nothing better you can do for your children than honoring, respecting and loving one another in your marriage. There's no other way around it. That is the most balancing, centering aspect of the lives of your children's lives that you can bring to them. That is the best gift you can give them, even this Christmas. It's a simple command. Husband, love your wife as yourself. Wife, respect your husband. But we make it so difficult to obey because we judge the worth of the recipient. We say, I can't act because they don't deserve as though somehow we're God, as though somehow we know the end of all things. The key to our obedience, the key to our success in this is to show the same grace that we've been shown. So why this whole talk about a new family for Christmas? Because we all need a motivation check from from time to time. We need to be asked the questions. Who are you living for? Who are you married to? Is it just your spouse? Is it one of your own making or desires? And they're coming short of that. Or is it the one that the Lord gave you and you're seeing it as, but actually I'm married to Jesus and I'm doing everything for him. And my spouse will be the beneficiary of all my love and devotion to the Lord. Husband, you have an opportunity. Your role is an opportunity to live by your design rather than living against it. To carry the responsibility to reflect Christ in sacrifice to your bride. And wife, your role is also an opportunity to live by your design. To support the effort of getting your family across the finish line to God's glory. I was thinking about this this week. I mean, we probably easily represent 100 marriages in this church. Could you imagine the impact on our community? And this isn't to say that none of us are doing this. I know that these godly marriages exist here at faith. But if a hundred or so or plus marriages made it their life's work to represent Jesus in the church, this whole discussion about where we go and how we evangelize and all that sort of stuff would, I think, take care of itself. We would be shining a bright and brilliant light, one that has impacted and brought health to societies for centuries previously. It would have an immediate impact on our families around us. It would bring hope to the lost who think there's no such thing as dedication. And ultimately, over time, we would have a cultural impact that can last because it holds up the thing that doesn't just get pushed around by whatever culture is defining it as in the moment. Let's give ourselves to this primary human relationship of being a faithful husband, one who loves his wife sacrificially, of being a wife who respects her husband, and does all these things as unto the Lord. Would you please stand and let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you, Father, for the faithfulness of so many. 
who have endured such difficulties in these areas. And I know, Lord, there are so many people who are being so faithful to you who heard things today that they're thinking, I still fall short and I'm going to make changes. Lord, I pray you bless their commitment. But Lord, I also pray that you would bring to mind for those that haven't considered these things or even made a step forward in giving their their lives, their marriages, their dedications to you. I pray that you would uh, help them graciously and illuminate their path uh, profoundly, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would make their their home a different place this Christmas because it isn't about all the things that we've made it in the past. But instead, it is about how we see you in the reflection of our spouse, in our children, and we long to serve and dedicate ourselves to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.